As AI continues to make devices, machines, vehicles, and things more intelligent, Qualcomm is pushing AI processing to the edge, specifically onto the device. With more than a decade of advanced AI research, they're making it possible for AI and machine learning to move from the data center and the cloud to the device. For enhanced privacy and security, increased reliability, more immediate response, and faster speeds. From AI to 5G, it all starts with Qualcomm. This is Voices in AI, brought to you by GigaOM, and I'm Byron Reese. I couldn't be more excited today. My guest is Douglas Leonard. He is the CEO of SciCorp of Austin, Texas, where GigaOM is based. And he's been a prominent researcher in AI for a long time. He's been awarded the biannual IJCAI Computer and Thought Award in 1976. He created the machine learning program AM. He worked on symbolic, not statistical machine learning with his uh, AM and Eurisco programs, uh, knowledge representation, cognitive economy, blackboard systems, and what he dubbed in 1984 as ontological engineering. Um, he's worked in the military, sim in military simulations, numerous projects for the government, for intelligence, for scientific organizations. In 1980, he published a critique of conventional random mutation Darwinism. He offered it, authored a series of articles in the Journal of Artificial Intelligence exploring the nature of heuristic rules. But that's not all. He was one of the original fellows of the AAAI, and he's the only individual to have served on the scientific advisory board of both Apple and Microsoft. He is a fellow of the AAAI and the Cognitive Science Society, one of the original founders of PTI Vanguard in 1991, and on and on and on and on and on and on. And he was named one of the Wired 25. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Byron. My pleasure. I have been so looking forward to our chat. And I would just love, I, I mean, I always start off by asking people what artificial intelligence is and what intelligence is. And I would just like to kind of jump straight into it with you and ask you to explain, to bring uh, my listeners up to speed with what you're trying to do with the question of uh, common sense and artificial intelligence. I think the, the main thing to say about intelligence is that um, it's one of those things that you recognize it when you see it or you recognize it in hindsight. So intelligence to me is not just knowing things, not just having information and knowledge, but knowing when and how to apply it and actually successfully applying it in those, in those cases. And uh, what that means is that uh, it's all well and good to store uh, millions or billions of facts, uh, but um, intelligence really involves knowing the rules of thumb, the rules of good judgment, the rules of good guessing that we all almost take for granted in our everyday life in common sense, um, and that uh, we may learn painfully and slowly in some field where we've studied and practiced professionally, um, like petroleum engineering or um, um, cardiothoracic surgery or something like that. And so um, common sense rules like um, uh, bigger things can't fit into smaller things. And if you think about it, every time that we say anything or write anything uh, to other people, we are constantly injecting into our sentences pronouns and ambiguous words and metaphors and so on. And we expect the reader or the listener has that knowledge, has that intelligence, has that common sense to decode, to disambiguate what we're saying. So if I say something like, uh, uh, Fred um, couldn't put the gift in the suitcase because it was too big, I don't mean the suitcase was too big, I must mean that the gift was too big. In fact, if I had said Fred can't put the gift in the suitcase because it's too small, then obviously it would be referring to the suitcase. And um, there are millions, actually tens of millions of very general principles about how the world works, like big things can't fit into smaller things, uh, that uh, we all assume that everybody has and uses all the time, and it's the absence of that layer of knowledge which has made artificial intelligence programs so brittle for the last 40 or 50 years. My number one question to ask every kind of Turing uh, test sort of thing is what's bigger, a nickel or the sun? 
And there's never been one that's been able to answer it. And that's the problem you're trying to solve. Right. And I think that there's um, uh, really uh, two, two sorts of um, phenomena going on here. One is um, understanding the question and knowing uh, the, the sense in which uh, you're talking about bigger. Uh, one in the sense of uh, perception, if you're holding up a nickel in front of your eye and so on. Um, and the other, of course, is objectively knowing uh, that the sun is actually quite a bit larger than um, a typical nickel and so on. And so uh, one, of the, one of the things that um, we have to bring to bear, in addition to everything I already said, are Grice's rules of um, communicating between human beings where we have to assume that the person is asking us something which is meaningful and so we have to decide what meaningful question um, would um, would they really possibly be having in mind like if someone says do you know what time it is it's um, fairly um, uh, juvenile and jerky to say yes because obviously what they mean is please tell me the time and so on. And so in the case of the um, nickel and the sun, you have to um, disambiguate whether the person is talking about um, a perceptual phenomenon or an actual um, state of physical reality. So I wrote an article that I uh, was, I put a lot of time and effort into it and I really liked it. I ran it on GigaOM and it was 10 questions that um, Alexa and Google Home answered differently, but they were objectively, they, they should have been identical. And in every one, I kind of tried to dissect what went wrong. And so I'm going to give you two of them. And my guess is you, you'll probably be able to intuit in both of them uh, what, what the answer was, what the problem was. So the first one was who designed the American flag? And they gave me different answers. One said Betsy Ross and one said Robert Hecht. And so why do you think that happened that way? <laughs> right. So um, in some sense, um, both of them are uh, doing uh, what you might call um, um, animal level intelligence of not really understanding um, what you're asking at all, but in fact, uh, doing the equivalent of, um, I won't even um, call it natural language processing, let's call it string processing, um, looking at um, uh, processed web pages looking for um, the confluence um, and preferably in the same order of some of the um, words and phrases that were in your question and um, looking for uh, um, essentially sentences of the form um, X designed the US flag or something and um, it, it's really no different than if you ask how tall is the Eiffel Tower um, and you get two different answers, um, one based on uh, answering from the, um, the one in Paris and one based on the one in Las Vegas. And so um, it's, it's all well and good to have that kind of um, superficial understanding of what it is you're actually asking, um, as long as the person who's interacting with the system realizes that the system isn't really understanding them. It's sort of like uh, your dog fetching a newspaper for you. It's um, something which is, um, you know, wagging its tail and um, uh, getting things to put in front of you. Um, and then you as the person who has intelligence has to look at it um, and disambiguate um, what, what does this answer actually um, uh, imply about what it thought the question was, as it were, or what question is it actually answering, and so on. But th this is one of the, the problems that we experienced um, about 40 years ago in artificial intelligence. In the, um, in the 1970s, uh, we built AI systems using um, what today would be um, very clearly uh, neural net technology. Um, maybe there's been one small tweak in that field that's worth mentioning involving um, um, additional um, hidden layers and convolution. Um, and we built AIs using symbolic reasoning that used logic much like our psych, our CYC system does um, today. Um, and again, the, the actual representation looks very similar to what it does today. And there had to be a bunch of um, 
engineering breakthroughs along the way to make that happen. But essentially in the 1970s, um, we built AIs that um, were powered by the same two sources of power you find today, but they were extremely brittle. And they were brittle because they didn't have common sense. They didn't have that kind of um, knowledge that was necessary in order to understand the context in which things were said, in order to understand the full meaning of what were said. They were just superficially reasoning. They had the veneer of intelligence. We might have a system which was the world's expert at deciding what kind of uh, meningitis a patient might be suffering from. But if you told it about um, your um, rusted out old car, or you told it about someone who is dead, the system would blithely um, tell you uh, what kind of meningitis they probably were suffering from, uh, because it simply didn't understand things like um, uh, inanimate objects don't get human diseases and so on. And so um, it was clear that somehow we had to pull the mattress out of the road in order to let traffic toward real AI proceed. Someone had to codify the tens of millions of general principles like um, uh, non-humans don't get human diseases and uh, causes happen before their effects and um, large things don't fit into smaller things and so on. Um, and that um, it was very important that somebody um, do this project. Uh, we thought we were actually going to have a chance to do it uh, with Alan Kay at the Atari Research Lab. Um, and uh, he assembled a great team. I was a professor at Stanford in computer science at the time, so I was consulting on that. Uh, but um, that was about the time that Atari uh, peaked and then uh, essentially um, uh, had uh, financial troubles, as did everyone in the um, video game um, industry at that time. And uh, so that project splintered into, into several pieces. But that was, the, that was the core of the idea that somehow um, someone needed to collect all this common sense and represent it and make it available to make our AIs less brittle. And then an interesting thing happened right at that point in time when I was uh, beating my chest and saying, hey, someone please do this, uh, which was uh, uh, America was um, uh, frightened to hear that the Japanese had announced something they called the fifth generation computing effort. And Japan basically threatened to do in computing hardware and software and AI what they had just finished doing in consumer electronics and um, in the automotive industry, namely wresting leadership away from the West. And so America was uh, very scared. Uh, Congress uh, passed something. That's how you can tell it was many decades ago. Congress quickly passed something which was called the National Cooperative Research Act, which basically said, hey, all you large American companies, normally, um, if you colluded on R&D, we would prosecute prosecute you for antitrust violations, but for the next 10 years, we promise we won't do that. And so um, around 1981, um, a few research consortia sprang up in the United States for the first time in um, computing and uh, hardware and artificial intelligence. And the first one of those was right here in Austin. It was called MCC, the Microelectronics and Computer Technology Corporation. 25 large American companies each contributed a um, small number of millions of dollars a year to fund high-risk, high-payoff, long-term R&D projects, projects that might take 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years to reach fruition, but which, if they succeeded, could help keep America competitive. Um, and uh, Admiral Bob Inman, um, who's also an Austin resident, one of my favorite people, one of the smartest and nicest people I've ever met, um, was the head of MCC. Uh, and uh, he came and visited me at Stanford and said, hey, uh, look, professor, you're making all this noise about what somebody ought to do. Uh, you have uh, six or seven graduate students. If you do that here, if it's going to take you a few thousand person years, that means it's going to take you a few hundred years to do that project. Um, if you move to the wilds of Austin, Texas, and we put 10 times that effort, 
then you'll just barely live to see the end of it a few decades from now. And that was a pretty convincing argument. And uh, in some sense, that is the summary of what I've been doing for the last 35 years here is taking time off from research to do an engineering project, a massive engineering project uh, called Psych, which is uh, collecting that information and representing it formally, putting it all in one place for the first time. And the good news is, since you've waited 35 years to, to talk to me, Byron, is that uh, we're uh, nearing completion, which is a very exciting uh, phase to be in. And so most of our funding these days at PsychCorp doesn't come from the government anymore. It doesn't come from just a few companies anymore. It comes from a large number of very large companies that are actually putting our technology into practice, not just um, uh, funding it for research reasons. So that's big news. So when you have it all, and to, to be clear, just to summarize all of that, you've spent the last 35 years working on a system of getting all of these rules of thumb, like big things can't go in small things, and to list them all out, every one of them. Dark things are darker than light things. And, uh, and then not just list them like uh, in an Excel spreadsheet, but to learn how to express them all in ways that they can be programmatically used. And so yes. what and, uh, do you have in the end when you have all of that? Like when you turn it on, will it tell me which is bigger in Nicola the Sun? Um, sure. And in fact, most of the questions that you might ask uh, that you might think of as anyone ought to be able to answer this question, um, Psych is actually able to do a pretty good job of. Um, it doesn't understand that unrestricted natural language. So sometimes we'll have to um, encode the question in logic, in a formal language. Um, but the language is pretty big. In fact, the language has about a million and a half words. Um, and of those, about 43,000 are what you might think of as relationship type words, like uh, bigger than, um, and so on. And so um, uh, by representing all of the knowledge in that logical language, instead of, say, just collecting all of that in English, um, what you're able to do is to have the system do automatic mechanical inference, logical deduction, so that if there's something which logically follows from one or two or 2,000 statements, um, then psych, our system will grind through automatically and mechanically come up with that entailment. And so uh, this is really the, um, the place where we diverge from everyone else in AI who's either um, satisfied with uh, machine learning representation, which is sort of very shallow, almost stimulus response pair type representation of knowledge, or um, people who are working in um, knowledge graphs and triple and quad stores and um, what people call ontologies these days and so on, which really are um, almost, you can think of them like three or four word English sentences. And there are an awful lot of problems you can solve just with machine learning. There are an even larger set of problems you can solve with machine learning plus that kind of taxonomic knowledge representation and reasoning. But in order to really capture the full meaning, you really need an expressive logic, something that is as expressive as English. I mean, think in terms of taking one of your podcasts and forcing it to be rewritten as a series of three-word sentences. Um, it would be a nightmare. Or imagine taking something like uh, Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet and trying to rewrite that as a set of three or four-word sentences. Um, it, it probably could theoretically be done, but it wouldn't be any fun to do, and it certainly wouldn't be any fun to read um, if um, or listen to if, if people um, did that. And yet, um, that's the trade-off that people are making. And the trade-off is that um, if you use that uh, limited, a logical representation, then it's very easy and well understood to efficiently, very efficiently do the mechanical inference that's needed. Um, so if, if you represent um, a set of um, um, is a type of relationships, you can combine them and chain them together and uh, conclude that a nickel is a type of um, coin or something like that. 
Uh, so, by no, but but the, the, there really is there really is this difference between the expressive logics that have been understood by philosophers for over a hundred years, starting with Frege and um, uh, Whitehead and Russell and so on and and others, um, and the the limited logics that. Um, others in AI are using today. And so we we essentially started digging this channel from the other side and said, we're going to be as expressive as we have to, and we'll find ways to make it efficient. And that's what we've done. That's really the secret of what we've done is not, not just the massive um, codification and formalization of all of that common sense knowledge, but finding what turned out to be about 1,100 um, tricks and techniques for speeding up the the inferring the deducing process so that we could get answers in real time instead of uh, um, over uh, involving thousands of years of computation so how, so slow it down for me to from computer speed to human speed I want to go back to the thing I started to set up which was what's um, who designed the American flag and one said Betsy Ross and one said Robert Hecht and the reason they differed is one gave me the 1776 flag and one gave me the 50 star flag we have today. Similarly, I asked both of these systems, uh, how many minutes are in a year? That seems to be very unambiguous, but they gave me completely different answers. And the reason being is one used a calendar year, 365 days, and one used 365.24 days, a solar year. So how would psych take that question and disambiguate it because one, it isn't clear which one I was even asking to begin with. So I ask a bad question about minutes in a year. Um, and so kind of just walk me through it like you were doing through steps in a, in, in, a, in a program. Like how does it get from, oh, a year can mean two different things because it doesn't seem like a year could mean two different things. Right. So, um, in, in a way, the answer is um, uh, potentially uninteresting in that there's, there's no magic here. Um, what you need to have is a, um, a lexicon, which we do, which essentially says, here are words in a natural language, and most of Sykes' um, lexical knowledge is about English. So, Syke knows that um, year has multiple uh, denotations, um, and in fact, for that matter, minute has uh, multiple denotations, and those denotations are um, the, lot, the unambiguous logical concepts which are quite distinct um, from each other. And so um, uh, the, the idea of uh, minutes as a unit of time, minutes as a unit of um, um, angular arc and so on, um, uh, may be ambiguous as English words, but they're not at all ambiguous um, at the logical level. You have different terms, different logical terms for those. And so, um, in a way, the, the questions uh, become uh, less cute uh, when you look at the logical form. So, we have um, one of the um, questions I can answer is, can a can can can? Uh, which is, you know, an adorable type question, um, but it's, uh, in a way, becomes less interesting when you look at how it does that because it, it essentially disambiguates uh, the first can as being a tin can and then uh, the second can as being um, is skill capable of and uh, the third and fourth uh, cans as being um, a referent of um, can-can dancing um, and so on. And so um, then once you have an unambiguous logical representation, um, Psych basically um, looks at, in this case, um, the skill-capable rules it knows, and it knows things like um, if something is going to be doing dancing, then it needs um, legs, and it also needs effectively um, a brain. And since uh, tin cans don't have legs and tin cans don't have brains, there are two good reasons why they can't uh, can-can. But, but to, to just stop there for a second, it seems like it kind of rabbit holes down forever because dancing could be like you dance around an issue. You don't actually need legs to do it. And it's metaphorical. And I mean, I, I wonder, do you think this is how humans learn common sense is that we just know uh, a bazillion different things like big things can't go in small things and that... Well 
let, or, let me or, let me let me answer your ahead. question because in a sense you really the answer is um, uh, sort of a, a clear yes and a clear no. So the the, the clear um, the, the clear uh, well let, let me not go into that. So one one type of answer to give you is that once you've disambiguated things like um, uh, dancing, um, psych psych knows that um, can can. Um, dancing refers to something which is um, a type of or a style of dancing dash um, the human physical activity or the human recreational activity. And um, so at that level, there's no ambiguity. Um, in other words, uh, once you have figured out um, what the meaning of can-can is, um, then the fact that in English we happen to have multiple meanings for the word dance um, doesn't even come into um, uh, the the equation or the calculation. So you've essentially transformed your query into an unambiguous form and all the knowledge that Psych has is unambiguous. It's independent of language. It's independent of English. And the fact that in English we use um, the word dance to mean um, two or three very different um, types of things um, sort of unimportant, and yes, Psych happens to know that the English word dance has these different denotations, uh, but the knowledge it has, like um, dancing as a social activity requires legs, whereas dancing um, about an issue doesn't, and so on, um, that knowledge is in Psych, but it um, um, it has already disambiguated what type of dancing you meant as soon as you figured out what the referent of can-can was. And then the other um, side of the question that you asked was, is this related to how humans um, develop common sense and develop intelligence? And um, for that, I think um, it would be um, uh, the, 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 at the epitome of hubris for me to say yes to that. It would be a lot like uh, people in the uh, 1600s and 1700s um, confidently proclaiming that clockwork automata explained how uh, human intelligence works and so on. Um, I think that we understand a lot, but there's an awful lot we don't understand about um, both how intelligence um, works in humans and how it develops in humans. And so um, I, I would say our goal is not to try to shed light on that. It's to create um, um, mental prostheses, mental amplifiers that work along with human beings to make people more creative, enable people to solve harder problems, do more in parallel, miscommunicate with each other less, um, and, um, and so on. Just like um, the electrification process and the electric appliances that came out 100 years ago. Um, certainly don't wash clothes the way that humans wash clothes and so on, uh, but that's fine. They amplify what we're able to do with our muscles so we don't have to do things the same way we used to. But I've, I've always had a suspicion. Uh, I mean, you've spent nearly half a century working on this, and, and, and I have a vague suspicion, so I'm, I'm not even asserting this is uh, of, of the same even order, but it when, when you take a little kid and you show them um, some cats, like they see cats, right? They see them in picture books and they see them here and there. And then you're out one day and you see one of those Manx cats, the cat without a tail. They say, oh, look, there's a kitty without a tail. And yet, so somehow they know it retains enough of this catness thing that it's still a cat, even though every cat I've ever seen had a tail but I know the tail isn't actually a requirement for catness. And, and, and I've always had this vague hunch that the way we do everything is we don't actually have a list of rules, a, an infinite list of big things can't go in small things kind of knowledge, but we have these vague relationships between everything we know and everything else that we kind of seamlessly take information from one area and apply it to the other, and and it's all this kind of amorphic, and we actually don't know explicitly big things can't go in. I mean, that, that isn't really the core of, of common sense. So, and so that's why I was asking you, is that what people do? Because it's perfectly fair to say, I don't know how people do it, we're, but we're trying to duplicate that ability the way we know how to in a computer. Or are you saying, we think this is sort of what people do in, in, a, in a way? is that people kind of learn all these 
rules of thumb, and then they kind of know when to apply them, and they just disambiguate naturally. Well, if if you if you forced me to answer, which in effect you've done, um, I I would say that I think that what's really going on in um, people's minds is some kind of sophisticated um, simulation. Namely, we're we're effectively manipulating um, models, which are the um, the representations and the analogs of the, um, the the physical objects and the processes and so on that occur in the real world. And humans are very very good at, uh, without even consciously realizing what they're doing, manipulating those models in order to um, come up with, with answers. But um, I really think that what we're trying to do is to build an artifact that will be um, a useful appliance for people to make people smarter. And that that has um, been our goal um, all along. It hasn't been to try to explain human intelligence or um, the human development of intelligence or um, or anything like that. I think that um, no, but I guess what we what we want to know is can these devices approximate the ability of humans? Can they or or, or are we doing something so alien to them? They're always going to be kind of embarrassingly clunky. Well, I, I would say there there is a um, a clear a clear answer to that. You probably didn't think there was going to be a clear answer to that, but there is, and the answer is the following: um, If you ask people to introspect and articulate, as you know, sort of in English sentences, how they're able to do something, um, people are actually able to do that. And the trouble is that that um, we're able to fool ourselves so that sometimes we can articulate um, things that turn out to be um, um, not actually um, an adequate explanation. Um, uh, one of my um, uh, favorite AI researchers um, uh, from my era was William Woods, Bill Woods uh, from BBN. And uh, he did a system, a project called Lunar, uh, which was um, a speech recognition, speech understanding system. And what he did was he got people to introspect on how they understood spoken language. And people are very good at, in fact, articulating that. And then he built a program based on that. And it was a terrible disaster. It was a complete flop. And it turned out people were just making up rationalizations for something that you and I have no real access to, which is how do we really understand spoken language? And so in cases where you get people to articulate things, you program them and they flop, that means that was a bad task to um, approach that way. And yet there are an awful lot of tasks where if you get people to articulate, especially if you're talking about um, experts articulating in the context of some case or some problem that they're working on and so on, the rules that they give you are actually sufficient, are actually adequate to build a program which is competent at doing that same task. And ones which involve perception like speech um, recognition or um, image recognition and so on, people are notoriously now very bad at introspecting on um, how they actually do it. But there are other tasks, um, very mostly the complicated ones, not the ones that um, everyone just automatically does all the time, but the complicated ones um, that involve expert knowledge, that involve um, things, skills, and um, uh, techniques they had to learn over time, and so that they act, that doesn't involve perceptual motor coordination and so on. That people actually do reliably introspect on. And when you build systems that contain those rules of thumb, uh, they actually do a pretty good job. And one of the powerful um, um, effects of building AI systems that way instead of, say, using machine learning is that when the system gets something wrong, uh, the person who's um, helping you build it can look at the step-by-step -step logical reasoning path and see exactly where it went wrong. And then they'll say, oh, yes, I forgot to tell you, blah, blah, blah. Then you fix up, add a new rule or whatever, uh, rerun it, and it gets the right answer. And so incrementally, you can get these systems to be smarter and smarter and to be more and more competent. But I guess where I would go from that is, like, if you were to ask me what's the biggest problem in AI, I would have said common sense. That we simply, the systems are just too brittle, and they don't, they don't, they can't even do the most basic thing a child can do. That's kind of the number one problem. And so let's say you've solved it. And, and let's say more than that, uh, you get another thousand man years or 10,000 
and and make it even like richer and 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 make it that thing you've dreamed about for so long. What do you think you have at that point? Do you have the basis for a general intelligence? Do you have something that you could build creativity on top of that? Or, or do you have Jarvis? You know, do you have the, the absolute best Alexa that, that the universe could imagine? Like what in the end, what is that a building block of, or is that an end unto itself? I, I think that there will be um, um, end points or leaves of that or that boundary of that, which um, could always be improved or which can't actually function. So uh, we're not focusing on um, um, image understanding or um, speech understanding and so on. So our system will be effectively um, uh, blind and, um, and deaf and so on. But um, if you ignore those perceptual motor type um, um, skills and tasks and questions, um, then there's no reason why the system um, can't, and in fact, to a large extent, already is um, able to um, answer uh, questions and solve problems um, at the level that you would expect humans to, to disambiguate ambiguous things, to um, interpret what people must have meant, to infer what the context of something must be so you can tell if someone is uh, making a joke or being uh, sarcastic or hyperbolic or lying to you or telling you something that they believed to be true at some point in the past or uh, whatever. So uh, there, there's certainly no limit. Um, um, there's certainly no special boundary around creativity. Um, uh, Psych has uh, made creative um, uh, conclusions and hypotheses for, um, for decades. So uh, while uh, we might like to think of um, creativity as uh, uniquely human. Um, there's actually nothing uh, particularly mystical about it necessarily. Some aspects of um, creativity are uh, things that are only open to a very small number of people, and in some cases you can't articulate it, and then eventually you find someone who can. Um, Giotto, about 700 um, years ago, um, was able to create the illusion of linear perspective in his paintings. Um, without actually understanding how he did it, and he could pass that on through apprenticeship to other people. But a hundred years later, um, Brunelleschi and, and others had worked out um, how exactly you do that with um, perspectives and horizon lines and um, and so on. And they were able to um, transform that from a um, ill-understood, um, mysterious ability to something which uh, the average, uh, um, you know, seven, seven or eight-year-old could actually learn today. <laughs> well, that's a pretty bold statement that there's nothing particularly um, special about creativity. So let's, let's take a minute and look there, because I think to many people when they uh, think about um, Oh, Banksy's graffiti, or uh, J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter, or or the Broadway show Hamilton. They have a hard time seeing those things which they believe are inspirational and, and creative, being as mechanistic and as as you seem to be um, suggesting. So, kind of make that case that those there's nothing really special about that? Well, again, it depends on what people are capable of introspecting and articulating. So if you pick, um, as you did, some of the world's um, best and most rare um, examples of creativity, um, you know, most people um, um, alive today um, couldn't do that and don't do that um, and so on. Uh, but there are small um, small-scale um, instances of creativity that abound all the time in our um, coping with the real world. There's a, um, a traffic um, obstacle up ahead, and we have to um, creatively think about how we're going to cope with that or creatively think of an alternate route. Um, and so there are um, a myriad, um, um, a plethora of um, what you might think of as small um, demands on you to be creative just to live your life, just to get by the day um, every day. And those are the kinds of creativity that um, uh, we can articulate if someone asks us how we were able to um, come up with that. We often can figure out what we did, how we did it, um, and, um, and that's the kind that we can and have been imparting to, um, to our system.
It's funny you, you saying that about, you know, I, I picked the rarest forms that uh, it reminds me of the movie iRobot where the Will Smith character is, is who's, who doesn't like robots, is talking to the robot buddy. And he's, you know, down on robots. And he says, can a, can a robot write an opera? Can a robot paint a masterpiece? And Sonny says, can you? <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. And so um, that, that doesn't mean, by the way, that we can't have programs that are um, extraordinarily creative. It just means that we have to find the right vocabulary to talk about the the rules and um, the breaking of the rules. There was a um, um, a Google um, uh, front piece app um, a couple of weeks ago that um, let people type in a melody and then it would orchestrate that uh, the way that Bach would have orchestrated that. But if you actually um, look online, there were um, two communities, um, one uh, of which was gushing about that, but one of which uh, was uh, musicologists and um, professional musicians who essentially said the composition sounded like um, uh, fingernails on a chalkboard to them because um, the, um, the rules that Bach followed and the meta rules for when to break those rules and when not to and so on um, weren't being followed at all. It was some kind of statistical learning thing, which to you or I would have sounded like Bach, but to people who actually know Bach um, sounded like um, uh, essentially torture. But you know, you could be right. I remember reading though that Yo-Yo Ma played a concert at Steve Jobs' house and, uh, you know, for his, he and his friends and, uh, and Steve Jobs remarked that it was the best argument he ever heard for the existence of God, that there was, you know, that his performance was, that there was something transcendent about the performance. But, but I guess your argument would be, well, if you had a sufficiently smart Yo-Yo Ma, uh, he could deconstruct that and explain it and demystify it. And then it can be instantiated in a program coded. And then the, the computer could quote, make the same argument. And, and with a lot of the most creative people on earth, like for example, Giotto, um, they aren't able to explain how they're able to be creative. And so there's no actual even approach right. to, to mechanizing, to mechanizing. I've read that, that when, when we try to learn how doctors diagnose things, the better the doctor, the less able they are to explain why, because they're not just kind of following an expert system if then in their head there it's a it's really subtle and so my um my shtick you know my uh my area of interest is consciousness and consciousness is um for the for the just to be on the same page with terms consciousness is something um it's the experience of being you a computer can right now measure temperature but it cannot feel warmth you, for instance, have many times said a computer can understand you. Uh, I'm not sure computers can understand anything. We use it colloquially, but the difference between measuring temperature and feeling warmth, that's consciousness. And that's having an experience of the world. And I've always suspected that that experience of the world is how we build that model you were talking about earlier, how we model the world is because we experience it. So what is sufficiently adept um, psych instantiation or even any other computer instantiation ever in your mind reach consciousness? Uh, could it achieve that? Is that an emergent property or is it something that uh, can never come out of a fab and, you know, all the ones and zeros arranged in any combination you want from here to eternity will never actually experience the world. It can only ever measure it. Well, I, I, I mean, it's sort of a uh, philosophical uh, chestnut by now that, you know, how, how do I know that you're really conscious and, um, and so on. And uh, to some extent, it doesn't really matter uh, whether um, uh, the person um, um, is the only real conscious being in the world or whether all the other people really are conscious or whether other people and computer programs are conscious. What matters is um, how they act and how they behave and how they interact. Um, and so if someone... Um, acts as though they were conscious, if someone um, answers questions correctly as though they were conscious, if someone um, takes decisions that um, uh, 
reflect what you would ascribe um, to being um, conscious um, and so on, um, then it, you know, what does it really matter whether they quote unquote are really well, conscious or not? Let, 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 me, let me take that on. Like if I built an ever more sophisticated uh, robot that could disarm bombs, the minute the robot experiences the world and feels pain, I can't send him in there to blow up the bomb. His, his, his life is as precious as a, as a, as a human. If, if he says, I'm conscious, I'm conscious, I'm conscious, but he is just an automata, just a, just the 17th century, then you just ignore it because you know, just like you could make, a, you know, a tape recorder say, I'm conscious, I'm conscious, I'm conscious. So I think it's the only question that matters, really, because it will speak to whether, whether computers in the end have rights, whether they are things or they are beings. And that, to me, is a huge question. Oh, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that... Um, Gradually, we will develop AIs where it is more and more and more difficult um, to decide um, morally, ethically, um, um, does it matter if we just turn this off or if we give it some dangerous job um, and so on. And um, I think that's, a, um, that's going to be one of the, um, the issues um, that we have to grapple with. Um, in the coming in the coming decades, is that we're going to have AIs which um, essentially uh, do uh, complain and beg and so on. That reminds me of uh, um, a great um, story that uh, Marvin Minsky uh, told me, my late um, friend and colleague, um, about when he was at Lincoln Labs about 50 years ago. And um, in those days, computer time was so precious that you uh, submitted a deck of computer cards and the very first card said how many CPU seconds to allow the program to run. And so he built a program um, that essentially um, would beg for time. So it would um, say, uh, give 30 seconds on the job control card, but then once it started, all it would do is sit there for 15 seconds doing nothing. Then it would ring a bell on the teletype console in the machine room and call the operator's attention and say, I need 20 more seconds, please. Then it would just sit there for another 15 seconds and do that again and say, I need another minute, please. And so at the end, finally, after like half an hour, the operator just killed that particular job. Um, and uh, Marvin uh, would storm into the, the poor operator's room and say, hey, I put 15 seconds on the job control card. You're charging me for half an hour of CPU time. And the poor operator would say, well, your program kept asking for it. And Marvin would say, oh, it always does that. Um, <laughs> Bill it instead. Right, exactly. So um, uh, that's, that's a, um, a particularly simple case where there is the perception of consciousness, the perception of pain, the perception of emotion. Um, and uh, because you and I happen to know what the algorithm was in the program, uh, we don't feel particular um, sympathy or empathy for the program being turned off after 30 minutes or uh, whatever. And so I think it's, um, um, it really is a very complicated issue. Um, it's a complicated ethical and moral issue. One of the things that argues to some extent for um, treating AIs differently than we treat uh, conscious people or animals that can feel pain is that, um, at least in principle, any AI um, in that situation could be stored, backed up, duplicated, um, copied, um, and so on. And so um, in that sense, um, you aren't really killing it any more than in, uh, say, a Star Trek episode, the transporter is killing the person who's being transported. So tell me a little bit more. Let's, let's switch and put on a business lens real quickly. Is Psych a product? Is it a technology? Is it something that is licensable? Is it something that's going to be in, 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 in Walmart by Christmas? Like what, from a business standpoint, what is it and where is it going and how does all that work? Yes. So I, I, uh, as you could tell, um, have no compunction about talking at length about what we're doing, and I'm happy to uh, to talk about that as well. So, from my point of view, um, Psych is a technology, um, but from the point of view of um, companies interacting with Psychorp, um, the right way to think of it is that we have a 
technology which sits at the center of um, products and services that we offer. And so we'll partner with um, um, typically a large organization in order to um, take some problem that they're currently doing, in some ways not unlike what the old expert systems technologies did 40 years ago, um, but instead of being brittle, we have a, um, a flexible um, common sense solution as well. And so um, using um, knowledge of the domain, using knowledge of common sense, using um, um, aligned or mapped um, ontology to database schema, um, uh, trans, um, transformations and so on. We basically explain um, what this database contains and how to access it. We do that for all of the internal and external data sources that that company um, um, is using in that application. And then based on um, the, um, uh, that application, um, typically the next application with that company draws on all of that plus a little bit more um, and so on. And so there's a kind of knowledge network effect where companies that use the technology find that extending it to the next application and the next and the next goes faster and faster. So with one organization, um, we do um, IT provisioning. Um, and then um, based on that, uh, they realized that we could um, put in information about different people's roles in the company so it could make recommendations based on that. We could put in rules about what people should and shouldn't be doing. So we could do a kind of compliance function and detect things like insider trading or um, violation of um, uh, policies or laws and so on. So gradually, um, uh, we build up a model of an enterprise um, and hopefully become at the center of, of the way that enterprise um, um, models its own um, functions and its own structure and its own functioning. Um, so that's typically what we do. But I can see um, more and more um, widespread um, uh, deployment of this in people's lives in the near future. And um, I, I can't say more at this time, but I think that your, um, your prediction about uh, uh, Psych doing something at uh, um, at Walmart by Christmas. Um, if you want, let's come back to that at Christmas. All right. So you've, um, you know, when I read your intro, you, you not only have been in the industry a long, long time, but you've had accolades since the very beginning. And I'm curious, did you know, uh, you know, John McCarthy, who coined the term AI? Did you know Doug Engelbert, who, um, who did the, you know, the mother of all demos? Like uh, all of the like early people, that were, uh, you know, uh, Claude Shannon, uh, all these early people who were around and, and kind of still touch our time. I'm curious, did you have experiences with any of them? Yes, with, with most of them. And um, I, I, up there, I would also rank people like Alan Kay and sure. um, Al, Alan Newell and sure. um, um, Herb Simon and, um, and others. And uh, uh, many of the people that you're talking about actually um, were very enthusiastic about um, psych project uh, because, for example, John McCarthy, um, uh, 10 years before I started it, um, uh, it, was also trying to sound a clarion call that someone needed to do something like this. And so he was very happy when we started psych. And in fact, um, off and on, he actually um, helped um, with the project and consulted with us um, on it. And the same with Marvin Minsky and the same with, um, with, with many of the others that, that you mentioned. But um, you know, in, in, in some ways, it was a much smaller, much closer knit uh, community in those um, in those days. And so almost everybody knew almost everyone. So who who was. Uh, who was the smartest? I'm trying to remember this. I'm going to get it wrong. Either Minsky said Asimov and Carl Sagan were the two smartest people he knew or Asimov said Minsky and Carl Sagan were one of the two. So, like, when you think back to, like, the, the intellectual giants, all these people you come across, like, who sticks out in your mind is, like, they were a genius. They were truly, like, a genius of the ages. So, the, the two people I – or maybe uh, the more I think about it, the more people I want to add to this list. But um, I, I would say that Ed Feigenbaum was, um, in a way, the most thoughtful and diligent 
um, as well as creative person in terms of thinking about what needed to be done and putting in the effort that was necessary to do it, even if it took years or decades. And he instilled that, that in me that, um, you know, in your lifetime, you're only going to have the chance to do one or two or three big projects that might really change the way the world works. And so when you get that opportunity, don't let it go by and um, don't stint from persevering with it until it's done. And so that really has influenced a lot of the way we have operated in the last 35 years. We've kept a very low profile. We don't write a lot of papers or go to conferences or um, seek any kind of um, uh, recognition in the field. Um, instead, we're sort of getting our work done um, as um, uh, quickly and as correctly as we um, as we can. The the other person um, that I was thinking of was Marvin Minsky, who was um, kind of uh, playful and uh, was kind of expert at knowing what rules to break to be creative. And um, I was constantly amazed um, both by what he would come up with and also how he would inspire creativity. So um, his PhD students would come to him and they'd discuss some thesis idea and Marvin would say something and they wouldn't understand him. And it would turn out that Marvin really didn't know what he was um, suggesting exactly, but um, the students, the bright students, um, um, belief that he must have had some good idea that he was trying to impart to them in most cases would actually force them to come up with some good idea, which is why he, um, um, he was the um, advisor on so many brilliant um, PhD theses. So you should um, always just say something cryptic like, well, I believe you should always plant seeds and you should always water them. Yes, and then like, that's it, like, huh? like yes, like Chance the Gardener. Exactly. 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 <laughs> I wasn't going to say it, but it, that's what it reminded me of. The the other person that I would add to that list um, is Alan Kay, uh, someone who um, was um, not just uh, deep, but also um, very, very broad in terms of uh, what he attended to, what he forced himself to learn and think about, and so on. And so he would think of the big picture, and very often, um, as, as I was doing things, um, both as a student and as a professor, and then um, working on psych, um, Alan is the one who would come up with um, the broader context um, um, in which I should look at what I'm doing and evaluate what I'm doing. In some ways, that's what that's the function that you're playing through these um, podcasts, is getting people to take a half step back and think about what they're doing, not just continue to do it. Did you know Weizenbaum? Um, uh, yes. And um, uh, there, um, let's just say there are um, several people who believed that their paradigm was correct. And it was very hard to get them to, um, to see um, um, beyond the, the fringe of whatever those um, almost religious um, beliefs um, penned them in. And, and, you know, fortunately, our paradigm is right. Okay, that's not <laughs> right. But, um, yeah, so um, there are a lot of people who really, um, um, Penrose is another example oh, right, of someone right. mm -hmm. who, who believed that his, who believes his paradigm is the right um, paradigm and, um, and so on. Chomsky is actually um, yeah. um, an even cuter example because Chomsky um, was wise enough to change his mind a couple times, but he left in his wake um, entire subfields of linguistics um, that didn't change their mind and then became dissatisfied with Chomsky. Well, you know, Minsky, of course, they, they thought Dartmouth was only going to take a summer in 1956 because they thought intelligence must have two or three basic laws like motion and electricity and all of that. And of course, he ended saying, you know, it's a hundred things. And it's so clearly a lot of evolution. Uh, it's funny. I, 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 Bob Metcalf, you know, lives here in town. And I was mentioned Weizenbaum to him uh, because I was talking about Eliza. And he said, oh, yes, uh, Weizenbaum, I took Comp 642 from him. And I'm thinking to myself, that was 50 years ago. Like, I don't even remember what I had for breakfast. <laughs> and somehow you like remembered the course number that he took from this guy half a century ago. And I was like, wow. No, I, I, I understand that. Many of the... Um Many of the conversations I had with um, with those brilliant people um, 30, 40, 50 years ago uh, really um, have stuck with me and not just shaped the direction that I went in, but still to this day shape what I do on um, um, a day-to-day -day basis.
Well, this was a brilliantly fun hour for me. I'm sure anybody listening to the show uh, can tell I, I had the best time. I uh, would love to invite you back. I'm only stopping because I've hit an hour, but I feel like I could. I mean, I have all these other things I want to want to ask you about uh, having to do with psych and then well, well, all of it. So I would love well, to have you come back. Thank you. I'd, I'd love to do that. And in fact, since you're since you're local, let me uh, invite you to come and um, and see what Psych is up to and what Psych is capable of today. I will be there in an hour. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Byron. Bye bye. As AI continues to make devices, machines, vehicles, and things more intelligent, Qualcomm is pushing AI processing to the edge, specifically onto the device. With more than a decade of advanced AI research, they're making it possible for AI and machine learning to move from the data center and the cloud to the device. For enhanced privacy and security, increased reliability, more immediate response, and faster speeds. From AI to 5G, it all starts with Qualcomm.